Welcome again, everybody. Today we're going to do a topical message, and it's called an overview of church discipline. So I'll pray, then I'll explain more. Father, I just pray that you will lead and guide us today. You will cause us to have a good understanding, a proper and correct understanding of your word, that your Holy Spirit will teach us as we read the scriptures, and that we will understand what your desire is for the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I borrowed this. This is an article basically from Stephen J. Cole from 2006. The references in your notes. I didn't really want to have to reinvent the wheel. So I'm just going to go through this and I've added my stuff to it. Uh, I'm going to explain it as I go. I'm not going to necessarily read the whole thing word for word. But it does a good job of giving a good overview of church discipline. It's quite comprehensive. So, the story it starts with is a pastor who became involved immorally with a woman in his congregation. They each divorced their respective mates or spouses and then were married to each other in the church of which he was the pastor. The congregation turned out en masse for the wedding, giving open support. Okay, what do you think about that? Hmm. That tragic story reflects the dominant mood in the American church today. Well, I would say also the Australian church too. That we should show love and tolerance to those who fall into sin. That mentality is behind the push to accept practicing unrepentant homosexuals as church members and even as pastors. Even among churches that would not condone these things, there are very few that practice biblical church discipline towards those who persist in sin. You know, some people would say that if you discipline your church members, they'll never stand for it and they'll leave and you can't run around sticking your nose into everyone's sin. But that's not true. The church must practice biblical church discipline towards professing Christians who persist in known sin. And that's the key here. Professing Christians, people who say they're Christians, who persist in known sin. So there's an unrepentant attitude. Now, some verses that people use to, you know, say, no, we shouldn't do church discipline, you know, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Now, if you keep reading, uh, as we will in a minute, in verse 6, Jesus says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine. Well, if you're not going to discern between what is right and wrong, how are you going to know, you know who is a, quote, dog and who is a, quote, swine, yeah? In verse 15 of the same chapter, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus adds, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And he says, you will know them by what they do. Again, we need to make some fairly astute judgments. We need to know what is right and what is wrong. We are making a judgment. Not to condemn them, but to discern between right and wrong. And in 1 Corinthians 5.12, Paul tells the church that they are responsible to judge those within the church. And so, practicing church discipline does not violate Jesus' command to judge not, which is more focused on having a condemning attitude. So let's read those verses in Matthew 7, 1-6 and 15-20, to and then we'll read 
1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13. And we'll get the context of these verses. So it says this from the Amplified Version. Do not judge and criticize and condemn others. Can you see he's talking about a critical spirit here? That you may not be judged and criticized and condemned yourselves. For just as you judge and criticize and condemn others, you will be judged and criticized and condemned. And in accordance with the measure you use to deal out to others, it will be dealt out again to you. Why do you stare from without at the very small particle that is in your brother's eye, but do not become aware of and consider the beam of timber that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me get the tiny particle out of your eye when there is the beam of timber in your own eye? You hypocrite! First get the beam of timber out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the tiny particle out of your brother's eye. Notice that? God does want us to help each other to become pure and holy. We need to be helping, pulling each other up, admonishing one another, warning one another. It's not saying don't do it, it just says, first check yourself, yeah? What's your motive? Do not give that which is holy, the sacred thing, to the dogs, and do not throw your pearls before hogs or swine, lest they trample upon them with their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. And going down to verse 15, Matthew 7, Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. So, are we called to discern between right and wrong? Between truth and error? Absolutely, yeah. Alright, 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. This is Paul speaking, right? But it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as the scriptures say, you must remove the evil person from among you. So again, our message to those on the outside is, Jesus died for your sin. You need to be forgiven. If you don't accept this gift of forgiveness, then you will go to hell. But God loves you and he's done this for you, so you don't have to go to hell. God wants you back in a relationship with him. But for the people on the inside of the church, as we spoke about and read those scriptures before, God desires us to be pure so he can work through us. If we don't have that purity, that freedom from sin, then we will not be able to be used by God. So what is the difference between God's judgment and believers judging each other or between each other. Well, I believe that only God has the right to eternally condemn or pass sentence on someone because only he has perfect knowledge and that kind of authority. So you notice in the scripture he said, look at what they do, yeah? But God also looks at the heart. However, every believer is instructed to judge or discern between good and evil and choose the good and reject or remove the evil. 
Remember, Jesus said, get the log or the plank out of your own eye first. So we do this first with ourselves, purifying ourselves of evil. However, if a brother or sister in Christ continues in a sin, then they must be rejected or removed from the church as well, unless or until they repent. So, Stephen says this, I realize that for some of you who do not have much of a background in the Bible, this topic will sound as if we're trying to revive the Salem witch trials or the Inquisition, but the Bible is our standard for faith and practice, and it has much to say about the subject. While I cannot be comprehensive, and we're not going to be overly comprehensive this morning, I want to give an overview of biblical church discipline. We will consider the purposes of church discipline the problems that require church discipline, and the procedure for church discipline. So that's where we're going. So we'll start with the purposes for church discipline. We may consider these purposes in four directions. I like the way he's done this. It's really good. So, toward God. Church discipline vindicates publicly his honour and his holiness. So we are demonstrating to the world around us who God is by how we deal with sin. So God's holiness is a dominant theme in the Bible. And what does it mean to be holy? It means that he is totally apart from and opposed to all sin. It's not just that he's perfect, but he hates sin. God hates sin. Leviticus 19.2 You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. 1 Peter 1.15-16 we are told that the church is a holy priesthood and a holy nation. And also in 1 Peter 2, 5 and 9. So I'm just going to read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 from the Amplified. It says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a dedicated or holy nation. That means set apart. God's own purchased special people. That you may set forth the wonderful deeds and display the virtues and perfections of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the Amplified really brings us out, that you may set forth the wonderful deeds and display the virtues and perfections of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what we're here for as a church to do, is to represent God to the world. If there's sin in the church, we can't do that where people have a hard heart and they're persisting in sin, not wanting help, not wanting to change. That's what we're talking about here. We're not talking about these general things where we're struggling with stuff. That's okay. We have a desire to change and we are changing. God will change us over time. But when a person hardens their heart, that's the key here. So because of this, when God's people sin, He would disassociate himself from them and take them through severe discipline if they do not repent and deal with the sin in their midst. And we read those stories in the Old Testament and the New Testament before. And a quote here, God would rather have no testimony in a city than to have his name mingled with sin. And again, We also saw this in the Old Testament where God says that he is against his people Israel. As we've been going through the book of Ezekiel, he said this, that God says he is against his people Israel in the sense that he will fight against them as he disciplines them because of their sin. His goal is always to purify them and bring them back into fellowship with himself. 
And so Ezekiel chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, it says, Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, You people have behaved worse than your neighbours and have refused to obey my decrees and regulations. You have not even lived up to the standards of the nations around you. In other words, the world around them, right? Therefore, I myself, the Sovereign Lord, am now your enemy. I will punish you publicly while all the nations watch. Because of your detestable idols, I will punish you like I have never punished anyone before or ever will again. Parents will eat their own children, and children will eat their parents. I will punish you and scatter to the winds the few who survive. Context is the siege of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. God sent the Babylonians to destroy Israel. He did save a remnant, and he did rebuild the nation from that remnant. That's grace. God's promised that he would. But the reason for all this was because they refused to repent. They had hard hearts. And they were causing God's name to be blasphemed, and so God disciplined them publicly. So that's the first way, or the first purpose for church discipline. It's toward God. It's to show that he is a holy God. And God in the Old Testament did that himself. The nations knew that yeah, God is a holy God. He's not going to stand for his nation to continue in sin. Now, toward the church itself, church discipline restores purity and deters others from sinning. So we're going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 from the Amplified. This is basically an instruction manual for church discipline. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you impurity of a sort that is condemned and does not occur even among the heathen or the unbelievers, people outside the church. For a man has his own father's wife, and you are proud and arrogant, and you ought rather to mourn, bow in sorrow and shame, until the person who has done this shameful thing is removed from your fellowship and your midst. As for my attitude, though I am absent from you in body, I am present in spirit. This is Paul talking, Paul the Apostle, talking to the Corinthian church. And I have already decided and passed judgment, as if actually present, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, on the man who has committed such a deed. When you and my own spirit are met together with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for physical discipline to destroy carnal lusts which prompted him to incest, that his spirit may yet be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So you see the motive here? Deal with the sinful, prideful attitude that his spirit may yet be saved. About the condition of your church, your boasting is not good. Indeed, it is most unseemly and entirely out of place. Do you not know? that just a little leaven will ferment the whole lump of dough. So this picture of the leaven going through the dough, you put a little bit in and it spreads throughout the whole lump. Purge or clean out the old leaven that you may be fresh or new dough. Still uncontaminated as you are, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. So that's really important. Why do we need to clean out the old? Is because Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. It says in Galatians that he died for us so that we could be cleansed from sin. We could be 
free from the power of sin. So, therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with leaven of vice and malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of purity, nobility, honour and sincerity and unadulterated truth. I wrote to you in my previous letter not to associate closely and habitually, notice that, not to associate closely and habitually with unchaste or impure people, not meaning, of course, that you must altogether shun the immoral people of this world or the greedy graspers and cheats and thieves and idolaters, since otherwise you would need to get out of the world and human society altogether. So basically we, we are allowed to associate with wicked people in the world because we have to when you go to work and all those kind of things, right? But now I write to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of Christian brother or claims to be a Christian brother if he is known to be guilty of immorality or greed or is an idolater whose soul is devoted to any object that upsets the place of God or is a person with a foul tongue, railing, abusing, reviling, slandering or is a drunkard or a swindler or a robber. No, you must not so much as eat with such a person. Movement in the culture, eating means having fellowship. What business of mine is it, and what right do I have to judge outsiders? Well, none. Is it not those inside the church upon whom you are to pass disciplinary judgment, passing censuring sentence on them as the facts require? Well, yes. God alone sits in judgment on those who are outside. Drive out that wicked one from among you. Expel him from your church. So, going back to verse 7, Paul commands, Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. We are a new creation. We need to live like that. So, leaven, or yeast here, is a type of sin. If you put a small amount of yeast in flour, it spreads throughout the entire lump. Paul is saying symbolically, what he says plainly, that the church needed to remove the sinning man so that the purity of the church would be restored and the sin would not spread any further. Now, a couple of illustrations. What happens in a family if the parents don't discipline one of their kids? What are the other kids going to learn? Well, well, that's all right. If they can get away with that, then so can we. Yeah? It's pretty logical family wisdom there. The sin of the first child spreads to the others. The same thing happens in a classroom with a teacher who does not enforce discipline. Soon the entire class is out of control. On the government level, if the authorities do not enforce the laws, the whole country soon dissolves into anarchy. So, in the local church, God has given authority to the elders. And Hebrews 13.17 says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief. That would be unprofitable for you. Part of their responsibility is to uphold God's standards of holiness and to do all that they can to keep the church doctrinally and morally pure. So, for example, if you know a Christian girl goes and starts dating a unbelieving guy, uh, a non-Christian, and that's not dealt with, then, and then she marries as unbeliever, even worse, then if the elders don't deal with his sin, what will the other single women in the church start to do? 
they'll also start to date non-Christian men. They'll stop waiting for the man that God has for them, the Christian husband, and they'll start to compromise. And the biblical standard that believers should only marry believers would be diluted and sin would spread through the church. So if we don't uphold God's standards of holiness, it doesn't take long for the church to become just like the world. You know, Corinth was infamous for sexual promiscuity, but their sin was worse than what was in the city of Corinth. It was incest. But it didn't shock the church. They're going, it's okay. Look at us, we're so tolerant. (laughs) They boasted about their acceptance and love toward this man who was intimate with his stepmother. So the woman was probably not a believer, and that's why she's not mentioned. But Paul does say that they should have mourned and removed this man from their midst. So sin in other professing Christians should cause us to mourn, not to be tolerant. God would rather that a local church be pure and small than it be big, but tolerant of sin in its midst. So we move on to the third aspect or third purpose of church discipline, and it's now towards the world. Church discipline displays God's standard of holiness and draws a line between the church and the world. Now, what's the trend in churches these days? Overall. Not every church, but overall. To attract people from the world into the church, the church becomes like the world. That's a pretty simple way of putting it. But we are to be separated unto God. The church is to be distinct from the world. We are to be like our God, who is holy. Now, we've got to be careful we don't add legalistic rules and say, you know, these are the things we don't do, like, you know, drinking and smoking and blah, blah, blah. Rather, it's about we want to be pure because God is pure. We want to be holy because God is holy. We want to be like God. We are being conformed, transformed into the image of God. And First John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So if we are walking with the Lord, then we cannot be loving the world. And if we're loving the world, then we cannot be walking with the Lord. It's simple, very simple. So, summary so far. Church discipline is toward God. Vindicates publicly his honor and holiness. Church discipline is toward the church itself. It restores purity and deters others from sinning. And toward the world, it displays God's standards of holiness and draws a line between the church and the world. Now, we come to the last aspect of church discipline, which is it's toward the offender. Church discipline conveys biblical love and seeks to restore the sinner. Okay, and you think, well, you're disciplining someone. How's that loving them? Well, let's talk about that. Some people think that love is opposed to discipline. But the Bible is clear that we cannot love our brothers and sisters in Christ if we do not deal with their sins in the way that God prescribes. You think about yourself as a parent, if you're a parent. Would you let your kids just do whatever they wanted to do? Of course not. It leads to their destruction, right? Why do you discipline them? Because you love them, right? Why does God discipline us? Well, Hebrews 
12, verses 6 and 10, it says that God disciplines us because he loves us. Because sin destroys people and relationships, to be indifferent towards someone who is sinning is really to hate that person. I'll say it again. Because sin destroys people and relationships, to be indifferent towards someone who is sinning is really to hate that person because it shows that we are not truly or genuinely concerned about them or our relationship with them. We're happy to see them follow their sin and just go down that road to destruction. Let them destroy their lives. Don't do anything about it. We don't really care. That's what we're doing when we don't do anything about it. Indifference. An uncaring attitude. If we do care, then we will say something. We'll speak the truth in love. So, again, sin is like yeast that spreads through the whole lump of dough. It's like a contagious disease. If it isn't checked or stopped, it will infect others. And that's why James 5, 19-20 says, My brethren, if anyone among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So what does love do? Love seeks to turn a sinner from his sin. So we're not being vindictive. The goal in church discipline is not to be vindictive. We're not seeking to punish people or throw them out of the church. Our aim is to restore the offender. Galatians 6.1, Paul says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, any sin, you who are spiritual, meaning mature, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So what does it mean to look to yourself? Well, just understand that you're just as weak as they are. You have a human nature just like they do. You could be in the same sin. You could be in the same position. We're not better than anyone else. So don't be self-righteous or condescending. And gentleness does not mean weakness, but strength under the control of God's Spirit. So it's like meekness, power under control. So there's different ways that we can approach people. We can sharply rebuke or we can gently appeal. And we have to ask for wisdom to know what is most effective to restore the person who is sinning back into a relationship with God. And the example of a sharp rebuke where something had to be dealt with in public face to face was Peter and Paul. Paul had to rebuke Peter. So Galatians 2, 11 through 14. But when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. For what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision, keeping the law. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. Did you see that? As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. His sin was spreading. And even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter, in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow Jewish traditions? So 
Paul could see that this was spreading very quickly and he had to do something about it. He had to deal with his sin of hypocrisy and legalism. Now, some will ask, well, what if it doesn't work? What if the person never comes back to the church? Well, that's not our problem, is it? The person's in God's hands, yeah? We are called to be obedient to God and leave the results to him. Jesus says in Matthew 18, 15, the last part of that verse, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. It's not a guarantee that they will listen to you, but if he listens to you, you have won your brother. So they might persist in their sin. That's their choice. God has given us free choice. They might exercise their free choice to continue in rebellion against God. But we need to do what we're called to do and be obedient to what the Scripture says. What are some of the issues or problems that will require church discipline? So the overarching principle is we should deal with any professing believer who associates with this church who is knowingly and rebelliously disobeying the clear commands of Scripture. So I'll read that again. We should deal with any professing believer who associates with this church who is knowingly and rebelliously disobeying the clear commands of Scripture. So that's the key there knowingly and rebelliously. It's the condition of the heart. It's willing disobedience. So, a few things about church discipline. The person we're disciplining must be a professing believer. So, Paul had written in a now lost letter in which he told the church not to associate with immoral people, 1 Corinthians 5.9, now he clarifies that he did not mean unbelievers, but rather a so-called brother who is immoral or covetous or an idolater, reviler, a drunkard or swindler. 1 Corinthians 5.11 He states that it is God's business to judge those outside the church, but it is the church's responsibility to judge those within the church. So what's the first step in church discipline? Well, we need to make sure that the sinning person understands the gospel. Sometimes the problem is simply that the person doesn't understand the gospel and they're not even saved in the first place. So when we're dealing with someone and we're beginning the process of church discipline, we ask them, do you know Christ? Do you know the gospel? Can you explain it to me? You know, And then in the particular sin they're doing, it could be living together. You know, Do you know what the Bible says about this? And a lot of people will say, I have no idea. What does the Bible say about it? And you can explain. And they might, oh, I didn't know, you know. And then they'll repent, and, and it's happened in many recovery churches where they've said, look, we can help you, you know. You guys obviously love each other. You're both brand new Christians, but you're living together. It's not right. We can put one of you up within a family, and we can help you guys to get married. And, you know, two believers get married. And everything's good, yeah? But they might say, you know what? I now understand what being Christian is. Now I understand about what the Bible says about this, but we don't care. We're going to do our own thing. And then they would have to leave the church, yeah? So the second thing is the person must associate with this church. So we don't have authority over people who don't come to this church, okay? Pretty simple. They must be associated with this church. Someone who comes to the church regularly. Now, 
another criteria is that the person must be knowingly and rebelliously disobedient. So the Bible has a really good verse in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everybody. See, there's different ways of dealing with people, with different people. Admonish the unruly, that means to warn. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with everybody. So, we do not encourage the unruly person, but we admonish them. Yeah, We tell them off. But we don't tell off the faint-hearted or weak, but we encourage and we help them. Can you see the difference? You know, sometimes, as I was saying before, sometimes a new believer is in sin due to their ignorance of God's word. They are weak. But if they continue defiantly in the sin after you show them what the word says, then he becomes unruly and you change your tone. Does that make sense? So you start off by being gentle, but if they become rebellious and unruly, then you change your tone. So, raising children. If your three-year-old is acting like a three-year-old, do you tell them off for being immature? Of course not. What do you do instead? You help them to grow up, to become mature, right? But if the three-year-old is defiant, then you have to admonish them. You have to tell them off, okay? So you need to know what is just immaturity, what is normal for their age level, and what is defiance. And in the same way, Christians are at different levels of maturity. Some of them are just immature, and they need help to grow. And sometimes they're defiant and they need discipline. Now the last criteria here is that the person must be disobeying the clear commands of Scripture. So we can't discipline people where there's no clear command in the Scripture. Like someone might have a glass of wine with a meal. Well, you can't disfellowship someone (laughs) for having a glass of wine with a meal because the Bible says that drinking in moderation is okay. But If they're getting drunk every weekend, that's a different story. Drunkenness is a sin. Again, another example here. Watching movies, even if the worldly movies, is not grounds for discipline. That's just their choice, where they're at in their Christian walk. But watching pornographic movies is definitely sexual immorality. It's a sin. And in the scriptures, I'm not going to read them all now, but there's many lists of sins, and you can read them there. They're all in your notes. But here's a summary of them. There's the violations of God's moral commandments. There's unresolved relational sins, such as gossip, slander, anger, and abusive speech. Divisiveness in the church. False teaching of major doctrines. And disorderly conduct and refusal to work. So before we go into the procedure for church discipline, just go to the back page of your notes. And... I'm going to focus in on some of the violations of God's moral commandments as it relates to marriage. So this page starts with respecting the marriage covenant. So first of all, and this is a common one in the church, but people don't respect marriage and the marriage vows. So what does the Bible say about the importance of marriage vows? Well, let's read Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering any more, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? 
because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And I've underlined that there, your wife by covenant. And then the next verse, but did he not make them one, having remnant of the Spirit? Yes, he did. And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. Okay, so the context here is that the, some Jewish men at the time were divorcing their older Jewish wives and marrying some young, good-looking pagan women. And God says, no, this is terrible. First of all, you're marrying unbelievers, and secondly, you are committing adultery. Your wife by covenant. So basically, God is the silent witness at every marriage. When the wedding vows are made, they are a binding promise that are remembered and upheld by God. Once married to someone, God considers you to be married to that person either until they die or the spouse is unfaithful and then there's a divorce. So what does the Bible say about that? Or Matthew 19, verses 3 to 9. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And that obviously is a rebuttal against the modern thing in the church where we have homosexuals and lesbians. And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And notice this next part, it's really important. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So, what is marriage? It's God joining two people together, and Jesus warns us very clearly, let not man separate. We can't. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. It was not in God's plan. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who was divorced commits adultery. So if you're not divorced, because one person, one spouse has been unfaithful and then you go and get married again, you're actually committing adultery because in God's eyes, you are still married to the original person. So another question people have is what about when a married couple separate? So although someone may be separated from their spouse, the Bible clearly says that God still considers them married, even if they're separated. God's will is that they may be reunited again. So, of course, we'd only recommend this if it was safe for both parties and the kids, right? The original grievance having been resolved, whatever it might be. Until then, they should remain separated. Now, the lesson to learn, choose your spouse carefully as this decision has lifelong consequences. For good, or for evil, yep. 
So 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11, this is what the Bible says. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, so there's the allowance there to separate from her husband, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. So if it is necessary for there to be a separation for the safety of the husband, wife, or kids, then let them remain unmarried or be reconciled. That's what the Bible says. So the Bible speaks a lot about respecting the marriage vow. Hebrews 13.4. I'm going to read this from three different versions. Firstly, from the New King James Version, it says, Marriage is honourable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So, people who don't get married and live together, people who get married and then split and just do what they want, with no biblical reason for that divorce, it's adultery. All sin will be judged. Hebrews 13.4 in the NLT, Give honour to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage, God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. Hebrews 13, verse 4 from the Amplified Bible. Let marriage be held in honour, esteemed worthy, precious, of great price, and especially dear in all things. And thus let the marriage bed be undefiled, kept undishonoured, for God will judge and punish the unchaste, all guilty of sexual vice and adulterers. So. God values marriage and sees it as being really, really important. And there's a clear warning that God will judge those who do not honour marriage. Why is it so important? Well, I'm not going to go into it now, but you can read it in your own time. Ephesians 5, 22-33. In describing marriage, Paul describes the relationship between Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. And when we dishonor marriage, we're in effect dishonoring the relationship that God has with his church. Because marriage is meant to be a picture of Christ and the church. So, another form of sin is the appearance of evil. So I'm going to read First Thessalonians 5.22 from the King James. It says, Abstain from all appearance of evil. So, in other words, it's not just the sin that's wrong in God's eyes, but also the appearance of the sin as well. It can cause people to stumble. I'm going to read that same verse from the Amplified, verse 21 through 23, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But test and prove all things until you can recognize what is good. To that, hold fast. That's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah. But test and prove all things until you can recognize what is good. To that, hold fast. Abstain from evil, shrink from it, and keep aloof from it, in whatever form or whatever kind it may be. And may the God of peace himself sanctify you through and through, separate you from profane things, make you pure and wholly consecrated to God. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved, sound and complete, and found blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So. This is really quite simple. Any activity or causes the appearance of sin is a sin because it causes the name of God to be blasphemed or dishonored. 
And people always think the worst. Unbelievers are always looking for reasons to put down and ridicule the church and by association, God. So it could be someone of the opposite sex going around to a married person's house while their spouse isn't there and giving the appearance of an affair or relationship. It could be two believers who are courting and you know one stays over the other's house. Now even if it's just once, what are the unbelievers going to think? What's normal in this world? You know, the teenagers get together and they have sex. They're going to assume, oh, these Christians are doing the same thing. So, you know, if you're courting, do not stay over at the other person's house. You've got to maintain your honour. and Don't dishonour the other person. Don't dishonour God. Then the other thing that happens is that the other, you know, teenagers and young people in the church, they'll look at, oh, so-and-so stayed over at the other person's house. Now, it might have been innocent, but we don't know that. They don't know that. And they think, well, if they can do it, we can do it. And then they can't handle it. You know, there's not enough supervision, and then they go and, you know, get pregnant, whatever. So the appearance of evil causes people to stumble, and it causes people to blaspheme God and the church. So, The conclusion for this part is that the main issue here is that marriage must be respected because it's marriage, an institution given to man by God that is a picture of our, the church's relationship with God. And again, read Ephesians 5, 22-33. And it doesn't matter what either spouse has done or not done, as long as they remain married, then in God's eyes they are married and that must be respected and honoured. So that's in the context of separation there, the last sentence. So let's go back and we'll look at the process of church discipline. The procedure for church discipline. So the main verses for these are Matthew eighteen fifteen through 17. It says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, again, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So, how do we deal with those who persist in sin? So these are the steps given in Matthew 18. So the first one is a private meeting. This is verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. So, if you can, go in person. Otherwise, talk over the phone, depending on the circumstances, male, female, all that kind of thing. Safety. Don't put yourself in a potentially compromising position or situation with the opposite sex. So, what's the point? Well, it's not just to go in there and set him straight and get things off your chest by letting me know how wrong he is. (laughs) It's not the way to do it. It's not the right attitude, yeah? Your aim is to get him to listen so as to win him back to the Lord. And Stephen says the Greek word translated show him his fault is a legal term that means to convince in a court of law. So we are trying to use logic and common sense from the scriptures to show him what is right, what is wrong, and help him to see the error of his ways in a gentle but loving way. Gentle, loving, but also truthful way to speaking the truth in love. 
So it's not our opinion that matters, it's what God says. We have to go back to the word of God. Now, Jesus says that if you have knowledge of your brother's sin, then you, not the pastor, are the one to go to him. Well, you should pray before you go. You should not call 15 people to have them pray. (laughs) That just reads gossip. You may need to seek godly counsel, but limit the circle of knowledge to those who can help. So, you know, that's what I do. I have people that I respect and trust. If I am in a situation, I'm not sure what to do. I give them a call. I find out what to do. What's their advice? Those who are older than me and more experienced as pastors. So I'm careful about who I share with. Also, check your own heart first. Make sure that you've taken the log out of your own eye before you try and take the speck out of your brother's eye. Yeah, And also, remember, we are not exempt from temptation and sin, so look to yourself. One of the dangers of confronting someone with their sin is that you can fall into the same sin. So this is a warning here. In Galatians 6.1, look to yourself. And check your motives. If your motive is to go there and prove to him that he's wrong and you're right, then you're going for the wrong reason. We should go in obedience to God with the aim of restoring your brother to God and those he has wronged. It's not about you being right, it's about restoration. Another main thing here is that we must get the facts If someone tells you about someone else's sin, tell the informant to go directly to the sinning person in line with these guidelines. It's not your problem. It's their problem. They heard about it. They should go back to the person. Do not go to someone on the basis of hearsay or gossip unless you are going to do a bit of groundwork yourself and find out the facts. You need to go to the person. And we go in gentleness, which again is meekness, strength under control, and wisdom. And again, sometimes they need a sharp rebuke, but usually it's best just to go with a brotherly, heartfelt appeal. If the sinning person or brother knows that you genuinely care for them, they'll be more likely to listen and respond positively. Now, how often do we go to the person before going to the next level? Well, it doesn't say. If the person repents, then the discipline process stops there. You've won your brother. The exception to this would be a situation where the person's sin is publicly known. For example, if a woman gets pregnant out of wedlock, she and the man, if he's in the church, needs to make a public confession so that the church can openly forgive her and support her in having her child. Or if a Christian man is convicted of a crime that is made public, even if he repents, he's still needs to ask the church to forgive him for dishonoring the name of Christ. Now, if the person chooses to continue in the sin, yeah, I know what the Bible says now, but I don't care, then you grab someone else and you take a witness with you. Again, it doesn't have to be the pastor, just another person you trust. They're a witness to your conversation. It may include a church leader, depending on the situation. So the point is to strengthen the reproof and to cause the offender to realize the seriousness of the situation. Your goal is to bring the sinner to repentance and restoration. Now, sometimes this is not possible because the person will refuse to communicate and there's no repentance, in which case 
you'd have to go to the next step, which is a public announcement to the church. So Jesus doesn't specify Matthew 18, but other scriptures indicate this step should be administered through the church leaders who have authority over the church, and you can read Hebrews 13.17. So before an announcement is made to the church, the leader should make an effort to contact the offender and warn him that his sin will become public knowledge on a particular date if he does not repent before that time. If the sin has to be made public, the church should be instructed in how to relate to the sinning person. Church members should no longer fellowship with the person as if there is no problem. Paul says not even to eat with such a one, 1 Corinthians 5.11. He tells the Thessalonians not to associate with such a one, but then adds, and yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother, 2 Thessalonians 3.14-15. So again, and yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So this shows that all contact is not forbidden, but we aren't to relate on a normal you know, buddy-buddy level that ignores a person's sin. Any contact must communicate. Any contact with them must communicate. We love you and we want you back in the fellowship of the church, but we can't condone or agree with what you're doing and we can't accept you back until you genuinely repent. Now, if they still don't do that, then there's this public exclusion from the church. Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax gatherer, tax collector, Matthew 18.17. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.13, Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And so, you know, in 1 Corinthians, there Paul is combining steps 3 and 4, mentioning the man's sin before the church and excluding him from fellowship at the same time because the sin was damaging the reputation of the church and it needed to happen quickly. Now, the last step is public restoration when there is genuine repentance. So, sometimes people will love their sin more than God and they'll choose not to repent. Others will choose to repent. Now, another thing that can happen is that those who don't repent will go to another church. And what happens these days is that because a lot of churches are quite liberal, they'll just say, oh, that's fine, you can join us. We can't do anything about that. But when people do repent, there should be godly sorrow over the sin. You can see 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10, and restitution where appropriate, like if there's a debt to pay or damages and things like that. So a person's deeds should reflect their repentance. So if the person does express genuine repentance, then the church should be informed, especially the church leaders, And the person should be forgiven and accepted back into the fellowship. And you can read 2 Corinthians 2, 5 through 11. Of course, there should be a time of proving before a repentant person is put into positions of ministry or leadership. So let's see, you know, if you're going to stick at this, if this is real. Give them the benefit of the doubt at first and then just test them a bit. Also, the restoration process should include some training or discipling to help the person grow and avoid the sin in the future. So we want to come alongside and encourage that person to be strong in their walk with Christ so they don't go down the same track again. So the church is not a fellowship of sinless people. (laughs) We are all forgiven sinners. 
and by grace we are pursuing a life of holiness and obedience to the Lord. And we must watch out for spiritual pride by thinking that we are better than a member who has fallen into sin. So the attitude is not, oh, look at me, I'm so much better than them. No, the attitude is that we should be mourning over their sin. 1 Corinthians 5.2 Again, what is the consequence of not dealing with sin in the church? Well, the church will soon blend in with the world and the salt will lose its savour. And the Lord warns that he will come and remove our lampstand, Revelation 2.5. So we must practice biblical church discipline towards professing Christians who persist in sin. So I'm not going to go through the application questions. They're the questions that Stephen put down, and I've got my answers there in italics. I think we're running out of time, but that's some interesting questions that you can have a look at and look at the answers. I'll just read the questions quickly so you know what I'm talking about. How do you know when to confront a sinning Christian? Since we're all sinners in process, what sins need confrontation? What should a church do if a member who is close to another member under discipline refuses to break fellowship? How should family members relate to a sinning family member who is under church discipline? How would you answer the objection that church discipline will drive people away and that we can't minister to people who leave our church? And the last one is, in the light of the possibility of a lawsuit, is church discipline advisable in our day? Why and why not? So, interesting questions. And you can think about your own answers. And I've got some, again, my answers there, but that's just my thoughts. So, let's pray. Father, I thank you for making it clear to us what your plan is, what your desire for us is, what the procedure is for dealing with sin in the church. And so we just pray. Lord, that you will lead us, you will guide us, and by your Spirit we can put these things into practice. We will have the right attitude and we will be doing things in a way that glorifies you and brings honour to your name and will communicate the fact that we still love the people involved. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.